During the age of constant connection, there is a force like gravity that shapes the inner and outer boundaries of our media. The pure force of signal, the pushers and pullers of knowledge, the invisible barrier. The ears of many hear the story of few, and few can relate. This connection of orbiting voices is the next paradox of the century. Power, good morning. How you doing? Hey, uh, good morning, everyone. Thanks, Cypher. I don't got much to say. Well, the only thing I wanted to say this morning, what, uh, what struck me is that we front ran the institutions, this big money that's about to flow in after listening to Kevin O'Leary yesterday talk about, you know, the people on the other side of the world, uh, billions and billions of dollars will pour into Bitcoin, these ETFs are all hitting now. So congratulations to any of you that front ran the big money that's, that's going to come in. <clears throat> that's what Bitcoin's about. It gives power to people. People were able to adopt this before the big institutions. <clears throat> so be proud of yourself. You front ran all of it. Yeah. And we front ran the, uh, pension funds too, you know, here in my own backyard in Houston. I don't know if y'all saw that news, but you know, the Houston fire department bought in. So they're, they said Bitcoin was too something to ignore, you know, basically. So they're it's the U S is first pension, uh, you know, buying into Bitcoin. They also bought some ETH, which I wasn't too impressed with, but hopefully they'll learn most important. They got the Bitcoin and, and it's kind of like a, a signal, right? Right now, a lot of this stuff is signals, like just an ETF. I mean, just whether you believe in it or buy in it or not, just the fact that it's here is another signal to, to the other pre-coiners. So it's all exciting news, man. Yeah, man. Bitcoin is happening. Like, I think right now with this environment, with the inflation, you know, like I listen to a lot of content, listen to Anthony Scaramucci this week, listening to Press of Pitches podcast with Plan B, listening to Marty Vance podcast, TFTC with, with Lawrence Lepper. Like he's a gold bug and he understands Bitcoin. It's like, this is really going to happen. That's what I believe in my heart. Like Bitcoin is really going to happen because we're really at a bad economic spot in our world. So. We're lucky this morning uh, to have a couple of speakers up here. First of all, John Farrell has been involved in, um, sort of the institutional finance world for a long time. He's got a lot of experience in it. And also Worth is, is an institutional money manager. Um, he came into one of our spaces the other day and was brave enough to come up in this. I shouldn't say brave enough. Brave's not the word, but like typically guys are this are extremely humble and they don't. Uh, I would suspect that there's quite a few institutional money managers under NIMS hanging out in these rooms learning about Bitcoin and stuff. And he came up and he shared some thoughts the other day. So I'm going to ask both of these guys one at a time, if you don't mind, if you guys are okay with that. If you're not, if don't feel obligated, if you're not comfortable doing it, but if I were willing to talk about your perspective a little bit and the, about what's happening in the institutional space in regards to Bitcoin worth. Sure. Uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, thanks for having me up. Uh, you know, just, I think the important thing to remember is that, uh, that we discussed, uh, uh, the last time I was on, 
the process by which institutional capital finds its way into industries or sectors or allocates to money managers. It's a really long tail and um, it takes a tremendous amount of due diligence. There's a lot of career risk in making investment decisions, uh, whether you're at the endowment level or the pension level. Um, and so um, I think my ultimate point um, uh, when we spoke last was uh, there's a lot of talk about institutions coming into Bitcoin, and that's certainly happened, but it hasn't happened in size yet. And um, it's not anywhere near an average allocation in the institutional community. And when that takes place, um, uh, it, it will be undeniable. You will see it in the, uh, in the trajectory of the move in Bitcoin. Um, so I'll just start with that. Um, the other thing I'd like to say is that um, um, there are a lot of people doing work on this that aren't talking about it. Um, and um, the first time you're going to hear about it is after they, uh, after they own it. So um, I'm happy to answer any questions. I don't want to just ramble, but um, I have been raising institutional capital and managing institutional capital for a couple of decades in the largest pension funds around the world, as well as the largest family offices. Um, and um, so understand the process quite well. Yeah, this, okay. is, uh, John, this is John, I'll jump in. I, I'll echo some of the comments from Worth. That, that it's a long sales cycle. When you get into the really big money, it's a long sales cycle. The career risk is real. And I would delineate between the smart money and the big money. And not that the guys running big money aren't smart, but there are guys who are running hedge funds who are legendary, but maybe real quiet, who have, who have been getting in the understanding this. You know, even guys like a Steve Cohen, who you know, is one of the better investors of the last 30 years, has acknowledged that he's going to get involved, but needs to take time to understand it and uh, be able to do it right. So, um, you know, I've been selling that market for a long time. And, um, uh, you know, once you get over that trillion dollar market cap number, I think people kind of think they have to get involved and, and start paying attention. And, you know, so I, I expect, I expect over the next five, 10 years, you know, it'll become a lot more commonplace for some of these uh, funds like you see down in Houston that was mentioned earlier to get involved, at least allocate a little bit. Uh, and, and, you know, as, as I know Alex knows, even if you get guys to allocate a half percent or 1% of AUM to this sort of an asset class, uh, that's going to tremendously increase the size of, of money going in. So anyway, happy to be a, a part of the group. Uh, the community is the best part of, of doing the crypto stuff and uh, look forward to continuing to learn. Awesome. Thanks for that, John. By the way, I have a follow-up thought for you here in just a minute. I'm going to let Bad Wolf go. Good morning, Bad Wolf. How are you doing, man? Hey, good morning. Um, yeah, I, I like this, I, this uh, conversation about institutional investors because, you know, like we all know, like when we buy Bitcoin for ourselves, you know, we're, we are our own stewards. Like we, we educate ourselves. We, we understand the volatility. We understand what we're getting into. I'm just curious, how do you prepare institutions for things like 50% dips? Like, do you, do you, um, like what's the, what's the talking points that get an institution interested, even though you have that sort of volatility? Is it the pure alpha? You know, are you, are you trying to convince them to add, um, a, a small allocation for the extra alpha that comes with the volatility or is it more uh, 
talking points on the hedging aspect of holding Bitcoin on a balance sheet. Well, I'll, I'll jump in and, you know, we were kind of joking earlier about how somebody fat fingered a sale of 8,000 bucks. And while that's interesting and it's interesting to be paying attention, that's not good if you're the Houston pension fund guy. And, and you know, that, that's not a positive because you want some stability. You want the market to be mature. And that's a sign of maybe a less than fully mature market. But, um, so it, it is a, a long sales cycle. It is, it is, uh, you know, the guys who are, um, tasked with managing money for big pensions are, are risk averse and they should be risk averse given their, uh, their, um, you know, their mandates. Um, so I think as it becomes more mature, more professional investors get involved, less things like we just, like we saw this morning where you had somebody fat finger a, a bad trade, the, the less times that happens, the better it is for the, the market in general. Um, uh, so I'll just leave it there. I'll just pick up on that. I think, you know, if for a strategy fund that is trying to receive institutional capital, obviously the most important thing is uh, a repetitive process um, that's proven uh, itself over time. Um, you know, and I think Bitcoin actually follows under that um, um, in that uh, something that has proven itself over time, the longer the Bitcoin performs, uh, the more validity it receives from the institutional community, uh, the more institutional capital is, is allocated to space, the more, uh, I don't like the word, but the more FOMO, uh, uh the peer group gets, uh, because, uh, as we spoke about the other day, um, um, peer returns, uh, are what you are judged by as a CIO. Um, and so if you ignore Bitcoin, I think over the next five years, um, um, you're going to have inferior returns, um, by significant amount. Um, and that's not going to be good for, uh, your career. Um, as far as how you sell this to, um, institutional allocators, I think it's more about education and I think it's about more understanding the macro environment and and the effects of the central banks uh and the debt burden that that weighs around the world so that's that's my simple uh answer to your question hey, thanks for that yeah that's um you know when, when we're investing for ourselves like we it's just a different thing right we like the stewardship level whenever you're investing other people's money you know that's um <laughs> i always keep that in the back of my mind like what are the what are they thinking you know like the big institutions what are they thinking when bitcoin drops from 50 to 30k like um for instance you know tesla made a big uh big investment on in on their balance sheet uh, at the beginning of the year at 30k and it went up to 50k and then it dropped down to 30k and you know there was there was institutional panic going on it was just watching that um during that that short time frame um, i'm really glad that elon Musk didn't sell his position because you know even though he took a little bit of profit you know he, he kept most of that on his balance sheet and you know now now the company is profitable so you know it's it's a risk um i think we've, we've heard things like 
hey, once you try just putting 5% allocation into Bitcoin, I think some people have been so conservative as to say 1% allocation into Bitcoin. And then, you know, but, but there's got to be a starting point. But I'm wondering, like, I guess as a follow-up question, uh, with, with institutions, are are they going like 1%, 5%? Like, um, what's the what's the average onboarding allocation for, for institutions? For an average portfolio, um, you know, if you're, can we take a step back for a second, just because there might be some people on here that wasn't that weren't on the other day, um, just to kind of explain the institutional market. You have institutional capital uh, that is in the form of family offices, pension funds, um, college endowments and foundations, uh, private banks. Uh, there's a lot of sources of institutional capital that allocates to institutional money managers. And that may be a little bit confusing. So if you are uh, a pension fund in the state of Texas, um, you have an investment department that is responsible for overseeing those assets. And they typically allocate to, um, you know, commodities. They allocate to, uh, hedge funds, private equity, long only managers. So they have a bucket of, of, of whatever their mandate is and, and whatever their allocation percentages are, they fill those buckets. Um, so um, that's how that capital flows from the institutional allocation community to the money management community, if that makes sense. that makes sense yeah that, that makes sense um, and then and then what would to repeat your question again so yeah the, the initial like one okay the allocation, the allocation the allocation so your typical allocation uh and my experience uh in this area is your tip john may have a different perspective my typical experience is you depending on the size of the allocator you, you might have a two and a half percent and maybe max five percent of whatever bucket you're in. So if you're a private equity manager or a hedge fund, they may have, let's say they've got $2 billion allocated to hedge funds. Uh, you'll typically get a uh, two and a half to 5% position from them. Now, what are they going to allocate to Bitcoin? I mean, I don't know the answer to that ultimately, uh, but I would think if they start to step in, you know, from everything that I've read and everything I've heard, you know, through my conversations, anywhere from one to 5% uh, would be a typical allocation. Now, one of the things you have to consider when you're, when you're allocating, um, whether it's an individual to specific stocks or your professional money manager allocating to specific securities is time preference, liquidity, uh, and volatility; those are three three things that you have to have to understand. So, if you've got a one percent position, you size that to accommodate the volatility that you expect to experience. And I don't think the volatility of Bitcoin is, uh, you know, it's it's very well known. So, I wouldn't I wouldn't think you would get institutions into Bitcoin and be surprised by the volatility. Yeah, that makes sense. No surprises there. So just want to uh, 
welcome everybody who's been joining us. Um, what we're talking about right now is we've got a couple of guys who work in the institutional uh, money management space. These guys are professionals, been doing it for many years, and they've been gracious enough to come up here and uh, talk to us about how institutions are looking at Bitcoin right now and what the what this means for the future. If you have a question in the audience, you want to come up, um, let us know that you want to come up. And the way we're doing this is if you want to speak, if you're on stage, we don't interrupt each other in this space, so just put your hand up and we'll, we'll get to you one at a time. Good morning. How are you doing? Uh, I, I didn't think I requested to speak. Sorry. <laughs> So I'll uh, I'll just say I love your uh, your handle, your little uh, Lego gold leader guy there. It's freaking awesome, and uh, you're the glorified non ship apparently. <laughs> Until the global Bitcoin standard. So thanks for doing your part, brother. <laughs> Go ahead, Matt. Hey, thanks. I appreciate your gentleman's time. Um, we've heard uh, we've heard a lot that. Different organizations, um, um, institutions uh, keep viewing Bitcoin as as different assets. Uh, one might lump it in with tech. One might lump it in with commodities. Another might call it a, uh, a quote unquote inflation hedge, and therefore uh, treat it more of a um, a, a bonds protection. Uh, what are, what are your what are you hearing these days? Your thoughts uh, are they trying to? Is there a push to know this something else? We need we need a um, a new category for it, or or perhaps uh, a reimagining. But your thoughts? Yeah, specifically, um, I think. I don't know the answer to your question. I would, I mean, I know that some people place it in the commodity bucket and I know some people place it in the technology bucket. Uh, both of those, um, it is obviously very much a hybrid. So, um, you know, where it's placed is, you know, it's specific to, to the, uh, to the institution. But, you know, my guess right now is that, it's either going in the currency bucket, the commodity bucket, or it's going in the tech bucket. I mean, those are the three obvious, obvious um, areas. I'm going to weigh in here for a second with my ask for opinion. <laughs> uh, the way we go with this with is it's better money. Full stop. It's better money. Get on board or miss the train. I, I agree with you. Uh, the people that I've specifically had conversations with, just just you know, friendly general conversations, and are they are they're allocating to it as simply a store wealth. So it would be in the same bucket that that gold would be in. You know what's interesting about that is that actually follows the pattern of monetary adoption that was written about in the uh, for Bitcoin by Vijay Boypati, right? You can like, look at history for a second in that all monies followed this pattern. They went through different steps. The first step was is it was basically just a collectible. So think about gold for a minute. There was a time when just kings and queens and royalty collected it in the form of crowns and necklaces and stuff like that. Then the next stage is store of value, right? Well, this one 
others started collecting it more and more, started recognizing it as something that other humans valued. So then it naturally kind of worked in the of value. And then eventually, when the opportunity cost of trading it to somebody else got equalized, they started using it as a medium of exchange. And then finally, uh, unit of account, meaning, you know, when you actually see things priced in it, that's when it's considered money at that point by the mass population. That's great. Mm -hmm. the accumulation phase, the, the store of value phase. I would say that I would say that that the institutions that are adopting it today, um, I would say predominantly are are store of value because um, you have to think about it. It is the easiest um, quality to sell to their boards. Um, and that's actually really important. Um, there's there's obviously uh, Bitcoin is bigger than a store of value, but you have to think about um, if someone wants it in their portfolio, um, what can they defend uh, as a thesis for that investment the strongest? And so I think that right now lies in the store of value. Yeah, that I agree. That makes absolute sense because it's a, uh... You know, for these for these people, it's basically their career, it's their livelihood, it's their job, right? You make a you make an hundred percent. Yeah, I get it. I understand completely. So, for those of us who are who are, or for those of you in the audience who are joining us, we're talking to uh, John Farrell and Worth right now. If you have questions about how institutional money managers are looking at Bitcoin and what the future holds for them coming into the market and then what kind of sizes, et cetera, then uh, asked to come up on stage and we'll talk about it while we're waiting for another question from the audience. I got a funny story to tell you um, before I get that, John, I want to ask you a quick question. You've known me for a long time. Were you surprised to see me move into Bitcoin? Uh, surprised it took so long. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I, I think we're of the same, we're of the same mindset with a lot of this stuff. And, um, you know, if you look back in the last, 15 years, you can say how crazy the world monetary system is and math doesn't work and that sort of thing. Um, but it seems to keep on going. Um, but no, I'm, I'm, I'm really happy. I've, I've read, you know, the, the, the pieces you put out and you know, kind of the, the different resources you've put out there that you have, you've used to help educate you. It's a consistent, you know, it's a constant learning process. It feels like the more you learn about this stuff, the, the more there is to learn. So, uh, it's great just to, again, I said this earlier, the community is uh, one of the best parts of being involved with this, this space. And, uh, you know, if you're a lifelong student, I think this, this is a great place to be because there's no limit to the number of things that are hard to learn out there. Yeah, I think that's 100% why lifelong student. That's the amazing thing about Bitcoiners, why I love Bitcoiners so much. You know, what's so interesting is, is that... Okay, so for those who don't know, and I'm not, you know, this is not really supposed to be about me telling stories about my past. I really want this to be about, um, you know, new Bitcoiners and stuff like that. But just for a little bit of background on that is that in the gold space, a lot of the people are just, I mean, they're students, right? Everybody's learning all the time. There's a lot of very astute people in the gold space, but gold has not done what it's supposed to do. 
gold was always supposed to be the canary in the coal mine. It was always supposed to show us what the problems were in the economic system. But that market has been so, I'm just going to come out and say rigged for so long that the signal, there's no signal anymore. It's all noise. And uh, so because of that, people who are in the gold industry, a lot of them are just angry and bitter and have been for a long time. I don't know a better way to say that. That's just the truth. And, you know, go ahead, John. I was just going to say, it's you know one of the things that a guy who I follow closely and is a good friend, Luke Roman says is, is um, you know, Bitcoin, he calls the last functioning fire uh, smoke alarm for the monetary system. Cause gold, as you said, should be that smoke alarm. And it's not, it's, it's manipulated by all, all kinds of means. Um, so Bitcoin, the reason it's rocketed is cause it is, it is signaling that there's something, the math doesn't work over the long haul. And one interesting thing I'd heard about, Comparing gold to Bitcoin is, um, you know, the, the last Bitcoin will be mined, you know, whenever it is, 2140 or something like that. So there will always be 21 million. But even gold, even if there's 1% more mined per year, it, you know, if you owned 1% of all the gold in the world today, in 100 years, you would own half percent of all gold in the world that's been mined. So in Bitcoin, if you owned 1% of all Bitcoin, you, you would... In, a hundred years, you'd still own one percent of all the Bitcoin. So I thought that was an interesting comparison of the two. If any of you are trying to send me DMs, uh, I'm going to request that you send them to Humble. Humble's so awesome, and I appreciate her so much because she helps me keep this stuff straight. I'm not quite a boomer, but I'm almost a boomer. I'm Generation X. So, like, I'm not a digital native, and, like, multitasking three billion things simultaneously is not my forte. So she's awesome. Thank you for that. You're welcome. I'll manage the three billion things. <laughs> John, uh, a, a, a funny story. So I don't know if you're familiar with Peter Cooper, um, but he's a guy that's written in the gold space for a really long time, and he's got a reputation for being a little bit of a... I'm trying to figure out a way to say this politely. She can be sharp. So I posted this article up on LinkedIn talking about my journey from Bitcoin to gold. And I didn't elaborate on the points that I was making, really. I just said, this is the conclusions that I've come to. Um, and he, he wrote a, <laughs> a really interesting response full of all of the typical arguments against Bitcoin that have been recycled about 8 billion times by people who have not really done the work to understand what Bitcoin is. And uh, I just, I just found that really fascinating because now I'm on the other side of the, on the other side of the equation, looking at guys in the gold industry who, who have so much sunk cost bias that they're not willing to expand their minds. They're not willing to learn and figure out what Bitcoin really is. And it's kind of sad to see because I know people who have done the work are looking at this guy's arguments and just going, gosh, man, you're just ignorant. I feel sorry for him and bad for him. And I wanted to – I didn't argue with him because that's kind of pointless. I mean, once a person's kind of set in their mind, you know, you're not going to make any headway with that. They have to be wanting to seek the truth or they're never going to find it. But it's just an interesting dynamic to watch because I've seen it from both sides of the equation now. Anyway, that was a bit of a ramble. 
So uh, welcome to everybody who's joining. We've got John Farrell and Worth. We're, we're uh, talking about institutional money, looking at Bitcoin and, and what it means for the future and just everything about uh, where this is going. Go ahead, Ant. Thanks. Do you hear me, everybody? Yeah, you can hear me. Yep, yeah, you're good. Okay, I, I uh, had a question. This is a question that actually gets asked to me a lot, and I, I think that I know how to answer it with like my gut and my heart, like how I feel about Bitcoin and how I approach Bitcoin, the asset. But I would love to hear your thoughts, since you know we have you on the stage. Is uh, you know, and, and especially since you just said it a second ago about how gold market was manipulated or whatever. You know, I've heard a lot lately about, well, the institutions are coming, but they're just going to try to manipulate Bitcoin. And, you know, I, I guess I saw a little bit about that in 2017 or 18, whenever that was, whenever they opened up the futures contracts that kept depressing the price. And my friends would tell me, like, we need an ETF to, like, you know, counteract that activity. And, you know, but it starts to get over my head a little bit. So I guess the question would be, you know, uh, what are some ways that the institutions are going to try to manipulate Bitcoin if they even can? Like, what's your feeling about that? Like, how does that work? You know, how, how does it play out? Thank you. I uh, jump in here for a second. I'm going to, John, I see you, you went off on mute, so I'll let you answer the question, but I'm just going to add a little bit of context to that. I had a really great conversation at the beginning of a podcast between Marty Bent and Lawrence Leppard, who, by the way, is going to come on here and do a discussion with us in the near future. Um, <clears throat> Lawrence Leppard was basically pointing out that the potential problem is, is if there's an arbitrageable opportunity, meaning there's a futures market, and then you have a player in the market, let's call it the U.S. government, that's got a bottomless check, but they can continue to write checks, write checks, write checks, write checks forever, essentially forcing the price down, creating an arbitrage where um, it's negative for uh, the actual Bitcoin price. That's the worst possible case scenario, I suppose. John, go ahead. I was just going to say the other thing to keep an eye on is how it's treated from uh, tax purposes for those of us who live in the U.S. and would be paying uh, U.S. taxes, um, just how that's treated. And that's one tool that the biggest institution, uh, the U.S. government, um, or one of the biggest institutions, can, can use to manipulate how people interact with, with Bitcoin and crypto. So it's, it's something to watch. Um, you know, it's not a big deal, I guess, if you never sell, but um, it is, uh, it is, it is a, the, probably the biggest tool that the U.S. government can use to kind of impose their will on uh, the Bitcoin or crypto markets. Do you have anything to add to that? Any thoughts worth? I really don't have any value to add um, beyond what's been said. One thing I would share, though, is um, let's talk about kind of size on the institutional side. So if you just look at the top several hundred pensions uh, around the globe, there's roughly $22 trillion, I think, close to in, in AUM. Let's just assume they put 5% of that in Bitcoin. So that's pretty much equal to the current capitalization of Bitcoin today. So it'd be over a trillion dollars that they would they would put into to Bitcoin. Now we all know that 
that it's not dollar for dollar. And there's a lot of discussion about, um, inflows and what that means to the capitalization of Bitcoin. Is it 20 times? So if there's a, if there's a trillion dollars in, does, does the capitalization move 20 times in Bitcoin? Does it move 120 times? I don't, I don't know the answer to that. But then if you look at the, you know, top hundred endowments out there, um, there's about a trillion dollars in assets in those. Um, some of those figures are debatable, obviously. But if they put 5% in, that's $50 billion. So I, that's why I'm just saying I think you haven't seen any kind of mass adoption institutionally yet uh, in Bitcoin. And when you do, um, some of the folks uh, that speak about parabolic moves, um, you'll begin to see it. I don't have any idea what that time frame is, but I, I do know the institutional, and I would bet John would echo this, the institutional allocation uh, takes a lot longer uh, than you would possibly imagine. I would agree. Yeah, it's a very long cycle. These people are going to do their research. They're going to do their due diligence. I can, <clears throat> I can say from personal experience, I've seen deals take six months, a year, sometimes a year and a half for the due diligence process to complete in the institutional market. It takes a long time. It's okay. It's the way it is. Um, the the, uh, Research process has started, though. Absolutely. That's pretty exciting. Yeah, thanks. Yeah, it is. Thanks, guys, for the answer. I I, uh, I did think it was funny. I, I do like to think about the institutions just kind of, you know, reminding, like, like all of us in this space, like your first time you really kind of got into Bitcoin. And then imagine like, the institutions coming in. You know, they're coming from, like, a totally different uh, mindset you know, and, and amount of money and someone else's money and company, whatever it is, you know, reputation, you know, there's like all different incentives. But I think it's like, for example, the other day when the ETF went live, we saw that spike. I know they're not like on an hour time frame, but it's just, it's funny in my mind to imagine when, when it like goes way up like that. And then it actually looked like a heartbeat. It went way up and then came way down and then kind of came back and, you know, and did what it's, you know, but on that first little bit of action, I was just imagining like, you know, the CFO walking in and telling the CEO, like, I got it, you know, like, we got it. And then it's like banging. He's feeling great, going to lunch, and then coming back in the office is packed up. He's out the door. You know, just, it's, I know that's not the way it works, but it's just kind of a caricature in my mind, you know. Welcome to the show. Yeah. Good morning, everybody who's still joining us now. Uh, quick shout out to Corey. I see you down there lurking. Good morning. Good morning, Shane. Good morning, Tao. Um, and everybody who's coming into the conversation. We've got John Farrell and Worth up here this morning. These guys work in the institutional money management market. And um, we're just talking to them about their views on Bitcoin, what's coming. The other thing I think is worth, worth mentioning, uh, and I think we talked about this. Uh, I think this has been mentioned on uh, uh, some of the log spaces, but what NIDIG's doing um, as it relates to uh, their partnership with FIS and onboarding banks across the uh, across the country. I sat in on a call, um, um, oh goodness, it's been a couple of months ago now, um, and uh, they said they would have close to a, uh, 
a thousand community banks onboarded. Um, I believe they said within a year, um, and they may have said year in, but I don't want to miss misspeak there. But um, and basically, what that is 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 community banks. As you look at your, you know, your phone, and you're able to look at your account, transfer money. Uh, you'll also be able to buy Bitcoin. So FIS is building the front end of that, and then NYBIG is going to do the trading and the custodian of Bitcoin. And that's, I think that's going to be huge because it's going to give um, a whole other um, conduit uh, for people to, to begin to buy Bitcoin. Now, I don't want to get into the conversation about cold storage or not your keys, not your Bitcoin. I believe that, but I'm just saying as far as adoption is concerned, I think that's going to be significant specifically here in the States for adoption. Any thoughts anyone has on that? Uh, love to, to uh, hear as well. Yeah. Just briefly speaking to the Nidig thing. Um, my understanding is, is that they've been um, integrating with the banks, helping them on the back end, setting up all the APIs and the software and stuff that's going to allow them to onboard all their uh, all their bank customers to buy Bitcoin through the banking through the regular banking system. That that to yes. me is like a huge evolution. It's massive. Like it's massive because people that that, that don't understand cold storage they. They, 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 it's cumbersome to them to set up an account to buy, you know, to buy Bitcoin somewhere else. They don't have to go anywhere and it's their, their financial institution. It just makes it so easy. You know, it's what's mind blowing to me is how far Bitcoin has come in, in four years. Like I, I wrote an article in 2017 where I was pretty much saying Bitcoin's in a bubble. And these are the problems it has, right? And I was pointing out the typical problems. Problems were it doesn't support enough transactions fast enough. Um, there's problems as far as the technology is concerned because the UX is very difficult for a lot of non-technical people. Um, there's the hacks that were going on, which at the time I was just being ignorant. And I didn't really understand. They're not hacking Bitcoin. They're just they're just, they're hacking. Um, entities or whatever the case may be and all the typical stuff you hear over and over and over again but but every single one of those concerns over the last four years has been addressed fixed um etc i don't know if fixed is the right word um you know the layer two lightning network etc has, has and, and all the different things that have happened and all of this stuff's been it's amazing well, I wonder with, you know, with the banks, with the, I think you had said over 1,000 community banks, right, where they're that's, that's, that's what I remember. I can go back and look at my notes from that call, but I'm pretty sure it was 1,000. Okay. And you said it's NIDIG and SIS, is that right? Uh, FIS. FIS. Yeah, based out of Jacksonville, Florida. They, they, and the reason they partnered with them is, is uh, FIS uh, handles all the technology for the banks across the country. Okay. Now, with with them working on this, I mean, what is everyone's opinion on the U.S. acknowledging this as currency? I mean, is this kind of a, a stepping stone to that, or would that have absolutely nothing to do with it? What are, What are your thoughts, or anyone for that matter, up here? I would say there's two two separate things. Um, 
I just see the FIS interaction or the uh, involvement, which is making it easier and, and more standardized. Because again, FIS, as I mentioned, they do the back end for a lot of small banks across the country, thousands, hundreds, if not thousands of small banks. They'll do the entire back end reporting and compliance and everything. So for them to make it easier for people to buy and sell, that that's just a, a positive to expand the potential market. So the rumor is that Q1 of 2022 is when a lot of these banks are going to be ready to flip the switch and turn that on. If, if I'm wrong about that, if anybody knows any better, any better please correct me um, with updated information. But, you know, it's mind-blowing to think about. If you think about all the grandmas, you know, and the grandpas who are maybe slightly interested in Bitcoin, they probably heard about it, but they don't know anything about technology. So therefore, they're afraid to get involved with it. When that pops up in their bank and they're able to maybe, you know, just buy $50 worth of Bitcoin. You know what happens when somebody buys $50 worth of Bitcoin? The journey down the rabbit hole begins, right? And that would be yeah. a fascinating dynamic. I know it really is, but I mean, that's just kind of what I'm wondering about though, specifically for that generation, you know, I mean, they're used to equating banks to currency. So my currency is at the bank. So now they're able to purchase Bitcoin. I feel like they're going to maybe view it as currency, but then it won't be currency. I don't know. That's just kind of where, where my mind is right now. Um, well, I think it's, it's going to be more like just an integration of your account. So, um, kind of no different than, you know, just access to your investment accounts along with your, with your cash account, or, you know, if you have lines of credit or, or loans outstanding with financial institution, I think it's just making sure everything is all in one platform for you. And, and also just the ease of which let's just say those that aren't technologically savvy and there, there would be an infarction for them to, to ever adopt Bitcoin because they wouldn't, you know, uh, create an account with a, an exchange uh, or, or, you know, do the homework or even understand how to store their Bitcoin. I think this just solves all of that for them. It's, it's, a, it's an institutional solution for the individual. And, and it, the other thing that's interesting about this is you might say, well, why would the banks do this? Well, the banks are going to earn uh, you know, non-interest income off of this, uh, specifically in the, in the form of uh, transaction fees. The banks will determine uh, basically what they charge for, for transactions into Bitcoin. Uh, and then, of course, NIDIG will execute those trades. It's exciting stuff. Go ahead, Bad Wolf. Yeah, when, you know, I like this idea of being able to go into the bank and, and purchase Bitcoin over the counter or or, or exchange Bitcoin for, for fiat over the counter. It reminds me of an experience I had when I was a child. Um, I was getting ready to uh, buy my first car, and um, it, it wasn't anything fancy, but my uh, grandfather had, when, when, like right before I was born, he had purchased, I think, a bearer bond or some sort of bond from the local bank and, um, and, and basically put that in a safe uh, for me to be able to buy my first car with. And so... I re remember the experience of going into the bank and redeeming this, this note for, for cash and then using that for my first car. 
So I, I'm kind of picturing a similar scenario where, you know, people want to buy something that's going to um, grow in value over time, uh, like an endowment of sorts, uh, to be able to give, pass on to a loved one, to give to a loved one, to help them with one of those first stages of life type things. And so, like, I, I could very well see people, even even boomers, going into their bank and saying, hey, I want to get something for my grandchild. I want my grandchild to, you know, have a, you know, um, a, a good head start in life, maybe a down payment on a home, you know, uh, um, you know, first year tuition in college, uh, a new car, you know, first car, whatever that might be. Um, they, they're thinking about their grandchildren and, and they're, they also utilize, you know, banks and, you know, they're very, um, you know, I think about my grandparents, they were very traditional and wanted to still conduct transactions face to face. And so if you were able to work with a personal banker at a bank to um, load up like a, you know, one of those one-time use Bitcoin wallets or something just to put into, to take home and put into a safe and, and to have there for I think the other thing that's, that's exciting about this is, um, Bitcoin is obviously going to become recognized by the banks as the absolute most pristine collateral. Um, and that's, um, if the banks are already involved in it, um, I just think that's going to be a very important uh, piece of this puzzle as well. And this is just the adoption part of it and the customer access part of it is a validation that it is a form of collateral. Yeah, and they're going to offer incentives to try to get that collateral from you because banks banks are going to realize that they need Bitcoin more than, than we need Bitcoin. And then they're <laughs> going to try to do everything in their power to try to get our Bitcoin from us by offering you know, interest rates for, for storing it you know, in, their, in their system. You know, they're going to do everything they can to, to detach our Bitcoin from our keys at some point. I'm not saying it's, it's in a bad way. They're just, they're going to offer incentives because they're going to want it. They're going to pay us. Yeah. Just, just the same way that they want our fiat to make their businesses run. So, uh, you know, I've, I've been getting some DMS, uh, separately and I just wanted to chime in taking a, a little, little different direction, but, um, the point was made about the mandates of some of these institutional investors. And again, the, the, a lot of the really big money is in pensions, and a pension is designed to provide for the the, the, the employees or whoever might be into their retirement. So you need to, based on actuarial tables, need to make a certain amount of return in order to meet those needs in the future. And as interest rates have gone to zero, the, the pension funds have been uh, forced to take more risk to increase uh, returns. And as inflation kicks in, the, the future needs of their, of their pensioners will increase. So they are going to be forced to take more risk. One aspect of that could be to allocate more into riskier assets like crypto and Bitcoin. Um, and, you know, the question we talked about earlier, 1% or 5% of AUM assets under management allocated into a risky asset like 
Bitcoin, or, uh, I'm sorry, what is viewed as a more volatile, I want to, maybe not more risky, but certainly a more volatile asset like Bitcoin um, could be one answer to the, 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 that disconnect between the, the re reduced returns and the need in, in the future to meet their, their uh, uh, mandate for pension uh, uh, pensions in the future. So, you know, I don't know if, frankly, I don't know if, I don't think it ever gets to 5%. Uh, I'd be surprised if it ever got to 1%, certainly across all pensions in our lifetime. Um, uh, but anyway, that's another factor out there from an institutional perspective. The need to take more risk um, and, and Bitcoin and crypto being uh, uh, the beneficiary of that move. Yeah, hey, and just a quick comment that I'm going to ask. Uh, I'm going to invite Chris here. Um, you know, you said it right. Like a lot of these institutions look at Bitcoin as risky, but I, but slowly, um, that opinion I think is changing. You know, every day that goes by, Bitcoin, the credibility of Bitcoin grows, the legitimacy of Bitcoin as a as a real asset grows. Every time you see a new institution jump on, I mean, we're basically seeing new institutions jump on board every single week at this point. So that's a nonstop cadence of, of credibility for Bitcoin. You can't ignore that. You also can't, as, as Worth has so lucidly pointed out, you know, these, these people's careers are driven by performance. And Bitcoin it literally is the best performing asset, full stop. Full stop. I've got this crazy chart that shows Bitcoin's growth of over 400% in a time period where gold's growing like 4.5%. I mean, you can't ignore that. That's a gigantic gorilla in the room smashing your head against the wall. So, um, yeah, that's pretty pretty exciting. There's a forcing function there. Number one, the, the inflationary aspect of things. Number two, just as just as John pointed out, they they have to make a certain amount of income. Good morning, Chris. How are you doing? Oh, good morning. Thanks for having me into the stage. I appreciate it. Um, such a fascinating conversation. I have like a million things to uh, want to participate. Um, on the institutional investment side, <clears throat> I know a fellow here in Vancouver, where I'm based, um, who started the World Travel about five years ago. Yeah, the first ETF actually legalized here in British Columbia, and he just went around looking for institutional investment, uh, you know, to the big to the big economic centers, Hong Kong, Singapore, etc. And his narrative to me was he was just telling them because it's such an intimidating thing for institutions. This is five years ago, for context. Uh, it was such an intimidating thing, like just just about one percent of your portfolio, up to four percent, was his like egregious claim, like up to four percent of your portfolio in Bitcoin. And this was unheard of. And he did the, you know, I think for all of us, he did the good work in this for many, many years, and it didn't really get much attention. And I think, as all of you know, um, Elon Musk did it earlier this year, and it panned out well for them. And it's it's really pivotal from an institutional perspective that Elon Musk move, as much as you might not like him or love him or hate him, it doesn't really matter. Um, he he set the precedent now where it's ignorant as an institution to not have at least considered what percentage of Bitcoin you have on your books. And that is a narrative that is like permeating very quickly in the, at the institutional level. Um, what I'm really fascinated with with this group is the retail side of banking. I'm not seeing what I've just heard, and I want to hear more about that. 
which is American banks, at least. I'm, I'm here in Canada, so it's a different, slightly different ballgame, but we usually follow the American banks, is the North American route, or Canada and the U.S., I should say, not Mexico, is uh, CBDCs. So they're going heavy into the CBDC market. So they want to paint Bitcoin like either the gold bar thing that you could hold on to at best, or it's bad actors that hold that dodgy thing and you should use CBDCs because only bad people would touch Bitcoin. And that's the narrative I'm hearing at the retail banking side. So I'd love to uh, hear different than that would be amazing to me. But uh, I guess the last piece I'll say on that is I have the inside baseball just because I happen to be CEO of a Bitcoin and NFT company that uh, I was in El Salvador about a month ago. Is there's about 14 countries in the next three to 24 months that are going to want to follow El Salvador's lead in some level of legalization of Bitcoin tender. But what's fascinating about the ones that are choosing that is that they're all kind of doing it as a, like they, they want to solve remittances, but all of them have a little bit of this FU to the U.S. And I'm a little nervous about that action because doing, you know, playing us versus them in the Bitcoin legalization market is probably not going to work out well for these countries. So I've said a lot. I'll just uh, pass it back over. Happy to answer your questions and thanks for the opportunity. All right, Andy, let's see your hand. I'm going to, I'm going to quickly uh, speak to a couple of Chris's points and then I'll, and I'll ask you to go. Um, Regarding the banking thing, you might have came in a little late to the conversation. We were talking about what NIDIG was doing on the back end to enable all of the banking infrastructure to um, enable their customers to buy and custody Bitcoin. So that's the first uh, thing. That's not live yet. That's something that's been in the works for uh, most of 2020. Um, and the current rumor is that will go live in the beginning of 2022. So um, we don't know. It's all at this point conjecture, but we're we're gonna um, find out here pretty soon. Um, in regards to the CBDC thing, uh, I, I personally am not really worried about CBDCs, and and the reason why is is that the reason Bitcoin is growing is because of human nature. Like when Satoshi built this thing, he understood. Um, human behavior in that people do things in their own best interest, full stop, right? So if you have an option of using this CBDC, let's call it green money, where everything you do is controlled, and if you don't say the right things and think the right things and wear the right clothes and do the right things, and you have, you, you're considered a, a naughty person by the government, and then you're, you're, you get this message when you try to buy groceries that says you're over your carbon limit for the day, too bad, so sad, go home. Or you have this orange money that uh, you don't need anybody's permission to use. People will figure that out on their own, and I'm not too worried about that. You know, the, the thing that is different about all forms of money in the history of mankind and Bitcoin is you really can't take Bitcoin from somebody without their permission. Like, if you do it right, like if you do self-custody, um short of torture, they can't take it from you. And if you do multi-sig, even if they torture you, they can't take it from you. So it's a change. It's a definite level up of humanity in a way that we've never seen before. Go ahead, Ant. Thanks, Alex. Yeah, I almost asked this question earlier to John and Worth, but um, I didn't. I thought it was kind of weird and out of context. But, but 
on the back of Chris's comments, um, you know, I, I, I do want to ask a question. So, so one of these, there's a television personality that in, in the America, uh, in America named Mr. Wonderful, who's made like a whole persona about being wealthy and being an investor and everything. And he came into the Bitcoin space a while back. And, uh, in my one, in, in my opinion, has made you know kind of some incendiary comments that show a uh, lack of understanding, but also kind of a you know we've seen this before. Like I'm here, I'm new to Bitcoin, I'm here to fix it. Well, I haven't seen him uh, diverge too in, too much into like shitcoinery or anything. Uh, one thing he had his comments have kind of hovered around is network bifurcation, uh, aka blood diamonds. Uh, and while we know that that, that that concept doesn't really work with Bitcoin, so to speak, um, you know, I mean, you can't, they do talk about flagging Bitcoins and whatever, you know, and I know that, you know, uh, uh, Mr. Wonderful did, I think, say China coin at one point, um, but saying that specifically that institutions uh, wouldn't, want to invest in any quote like dirty coins or anything like that you know so it's and it's kind of like network bifurcation it's like you know coming in cutting off a whole subset of, of bitcoins who have been activated and and you know that's not the right word but who are circulating and and you know in the economy and then saying okay boom we don't want any of those we're the institutions we only want coins that are theoretically mined cleanly or have never been involved on Silk Road or whatever, 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 you know, um, what do you guys think about institutions? What are you hearing? I mean, do y'all even think like that? Is he right in your opinion? I mean, or is this a dumb line of questions? Thank you. I'll speak to that real quick unless one of you guys wants to take it. And if you do put your hand up, I'll miss. Um, what you're describing Ant, is a typical fork. You're talking, you're talking about a hard fork. Like if they want to do that, they basically have to hard fork Bitcoin. And the thing to understand about that is this has already been tried multiple times. I mean, look at Bitcoin Cash. What's going on with that thing? So it's dead. They're all dead. All of the attempts to fork Bitcoin off of its purpose are dead. And it's not like there hasn't been massive influence behind those forks. The blockchain war, or I'm sorry, the block size war is an example of that. So the amazing thing about Bitcoin, again, is the way consensus works. So let's talk about that for just a minute. I never understood consensus back in the day around 2017 when I wrote that article. I was like, I, I admit it. I don't understand consensus, but it seems to me that if everybody can just agree, can't they just screw it up again, just like everything humans have done? And the thing is, it comes back to that whole human behavior thing. Like when the block size war occurred, they were supported by something like 85% of the hash rate available with the miners, some of the largest companies in the industry, some very heavy hitters corporate-wise, backed by big money with political interests. And that failed. Why? Because even though 85% of the hash power was signaling to do this thing, all of the nodes out there who are run by regular people were like, no, screw that. We're not doing that. So they can fork off onto their own little chain if they want. But if they're just by themselves playing Monopoly alone and everybody else in the world 
goes to the monopoly board where the consensus says, yeah, we're going to keep this in favor of the people, it's not going to work. And thus, look, I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but the people who are running the nodes are, are highly educated Bitcoiners. We understand what's at stake. And I just don't see any time in the near future that that's going to change. Yeah, no, I don't think, I, I, I respect your comments a lot. I don't think that he's um, trying to fork it. I didn't get that read. I think what I was feeling more was that he was just kind of saying, like, the institutions aren't going to want to purchase coins if they are flagged with, you know, some kind of history or whatever, which essentially bifurcates the network without a fork. It, like, you know, it makes a lot of coins essentially worthless if, if he's trying to sell the concept that, like, Instant, you know, you may be holding it, but institutions don't want it. They don't want what you have. So we're all hodling basically these coins because they were mined in China or they had some history. That's what I'm talking about. I don't think he's trying to hard fork it. I'm just interested if, if he's, you know, if it's total nonsense, if institutions don't even think that way. Because when I read that, I was like, yeah, that is kind of like interesting. But at the same time, I'm like, do institutions even care? Like, you know, because it, it attacks the very fungibility, if that's the right pronunciation of that word, of Bitcoin as money. If you can say, like, well, I don't want these coins, but these coins are okay. The institutions don't want those coins, but we'll take these these coins because we know that they were mined in, in Phoenix, Arizona, specifically at 2, at two o'clock on this Thursday. Yeah, I don't, I don't know how that would work. I mean, that's... I think there's a couple of people to do. Right. Uh, a couple of thoughts just before I jump off here. Sorry, guys, I'm just a bit in uh, transit here. Uh, early morning, Vancouver. Um, a couple of things to worth note. If you haven't seen it, there's a YouTube video called The Machine Greens. It's the best Bitcoin video I've ever seen in this for this context, which is the power usage concerns. Um, so Kevin Leary is following up on the Elon Musk narrative around power concerns. And understandable, it's, uh, people are fearful of the power concerns. The, um, the Machine Greens answers it, so I'm not going to try and do it here. But uh, we are now playing, in, at least in my industry, part of the industry, I should say, is we're playing in Layer 2. So Lightning Network, Liquid, this is where my days are spent. These are Layer 2 that don't have the mining energy problem. One of the things that's worth note, in Canada and the U.S., uh, a year ago, September... The four biggest auditing firms introduced a thing called the uh, uh, ESG, so environmental, sustain, uh, social, and governance. These are things that have to be reported by every major corporation. So because this chat is around the institutional perspective, you can no longer be an institution and ignore your ESG rating or your evaluation. And so this is what Elon Musk got pressure about is when he bought Bitcoin and saying, well, the energy usage, you got to pull 100 books, it's not energy efficient. And so the ESG concerns are the specific concerns that he had. And so this is the same thing that Kevin Leary is bringing up is, can you, he's basically saying in his provocative terms, so you kind of ignore the provocative rhetoric, and just note that there's no mining company that's going to be able to ignore having a stance on their ESG stance. So you're either like, yeah, we, we mine based off of coal, or we mine based off of geothermal and a volcano, is going to be part of the reports moving forward in 2022. Like, there's no ignoring that. So it is going to be a stance that you have to have thought of as a company 
And so you just can't ignore that. And so I think that's the important thing to think about moving forward is you can't just, you know, say I'm, I'm running a, you know, my mining operation in a coal mine and think that it's going to get ignored anymore. And that's what could happen until now. But the four big auditing firms have brought in these things that are going to evaluate that kind of thing. I think some, uh, how to put it charitably, uh, older white guys from the 20th century are going to have to wrap their brains around that this is a global worldwide asset as well. And there's going to be a lot of people that you don't understand that maybe you don't like who also see the value in Bitcoin and will hold it and preserve their wealth in it. And it's not, and, and your opinion doesn't matter. You know, so, you know, in the, in the 20th century and, and earlier when you can, well, we're, we're, we're going to, uh, we're going to deny these resources. We're going to deny these goods. We're not going to, we're going to deny these services. We're going to even kick you off our money, despite telling the rest of the world that we should be the global reserve money. Like that doesn't work in a Bitcoin world. And, uh, you know, Kevin O'Leary and, and he's, he's the least offender, but there, there's much worse, but you know, they're going to have to just wrap their brains around you. You don't have, no one has a monopoly and no one has control over Bitcoin. Yeah, I agree with that. Now, while Chris is correct in the short term, what you're seeing as far as the ESG narrative, that's just sort of the old guard trying to maintain control of the global financial system. They're, they're implementing this stuff so that they can add conditions on how companies operate, right? But if you think about it, this is all a regulatory environment. Regulation requires enforcement and enforcement requires resources. And the end game for Bitcoin is if everybody is transferring their capital from the fiat world into Bitcoin, eventually these regulatory systems will be defunded over time. And so uh, while in the short term, I agree that that's something that needs to be kept an eye on. And I'm pretty sure that all of these large, especially the ones on the exchanges, mining companies are very well aware that they're, they're making sure that they're taking steps for the longevity of their, of their companies, no doubt. Yeah, I would totally agree with you. Um, I think that ESG targets are a temporary stopgap to make themselves look better in the short term. I just want to acknowledge actually one little really weird thing. This is the first Bitcoin space I've done, and I've done many of them, where it's the most respectful listening group I've ever participated in, where between speakers, there's like a full breath taken. And this sounds really silly, but for people who are listening, people who are emotionally intelligent, it's hyper they're going to be hyper aware of what I'm observing. It's just this moment that we all are like pausing and listening to each other instead of jumping over each other. So it sounds silly, sort of interrupt my mouth. We're back to the people who don't get it, but it's a really powerful thing as well. It's more powerful than ESGs, I would argue, in the long term. And I think if Bitcoiners catch that thing, it's just catching where other people are at because all of us are really excited about Bitcoin, for example. And I want to talk, I'm, going to, I'm heading to a meeting right now to talk about Bitcoin over coffee, so I'm going to get animated and be talking over people just because I'm excited about it. But I think this notion of like meeting people where they're at, like they're just overwhelmed in their day and we're, you know, we have global anxiety fear index at an all time high right now. I was not trying to jump over each other and win, 
but instead listen and share. And that's what this group has gotten at a level I've never witnessed in Twitter spaces. So thanks for that in case I get dropped off before I head to my destination or arrive at my destination. No worries. I appreciate your comment, Chris. And just really quickly, that's not an accident. We've done that intentionally from day one. You know, when I, I'm new to Twitter spaces, I've only been doing this for about a week and a half now. And like when I jumped into Twitter spaces, all I saw was chaos, you know, people running each other over, speaking over each other, it's just egos smashing into each other. And nobody's, I mean, that's not a cool environment for a lot of people. And, that, and I especially want to focus on an environment that's inviting and welcome and kind to pre-coiners and people who are interested in Bitcoin who don't own Bitcoin yet. That's really the purpose here. I mean, if you've got a bunch of Bitcoiners in a room and they're all just talking to each other about Bitcoin, that's an echo chamber. I want to be focused on the 7 point something billion people in the world who don't own Bitcoin yet. That's the mission here. These rooms that I host, shut up dogs, <laughs> sorry. These rooms that I host uh, are, are intended to be about the Bitcoin army. Our job is to go out there and convey to the other 7 billion people why, why this is going to change humanity forever. Yeah, I would just agree. I think that, uh, I, you know, I like hanging out in these spaces. I actually like them all. I do, you know, I like the mosh pit scene. I, I like it when it gets in, you know, some of them are just public, you know, like kind of Bitcoin hangouts, you know, and, and, and if you're in a hangout room, yeah, I mean, you know, just kick it, whatever. But, but I do like the structure in your spaces, Alex, and credit to Alex. I mean, you've been doing a good job moderating and you said you're new, but it does kind of create like a good space here. And uh, we've seen it. I mean, when somebody comes up and tries to not really like add to the you know conversation or they try to talk over somebody, it's like they get booted. It's like no hard feelings, really. I don't even think it's just, you know, it's about creating a good conversation. And, you know, if you want to, you know, talk over people and, and join a spirited debate, there's plenty of that stuff out there. Let me tell you, I've been on these spaces. Sometimes we talk like 24 hours straight about, about Bitcoin. I've seen all you guys there. So, you know, definitely credit to Alex. Cool spaces, bro. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. And, and here's something just to add to that. If we kick you, right, it's not because I don't like you. I'm not trying to be mean to anybody. I don't like hate anyone. It's just we're trying, we're trying to maintain, you know, the vibe of what we're going for here. So um, welcome, WW Cool, WGMI Ronaldo. Good morning. Maybe you hit uh, the thing to speak on accident. So in a little bit, if Jaime's around, he's uh, he's sent me a DM where he's saying that um, they've been working on a cool project with a couple of Salvadorian music artists, and that we're pilling the heck out of them. They're probably going to come up here and talk about that in a little bit. We've had a lot of discussion this morning around what's going to happen in the institutional space. We've had Ruth up here. And uh, a good friend of mine named John Farrell, both of these guys have been working in the institutional money management industry for a while. And uh, it's been really cool talking about all that kind of stuff. we got about a 30 minutes left. If there's anybody in the audience that has questions about anything pertaining to Bitcoin, go ahead and bring it up. If you want to speak, come on up. We promise we'll be nice to you.
two things I'll note uh, while I'm again stuck in traffic here is um, I was just in El Salvador, so if people have any questions about Bitcoin life in El Salvador, I'm, I was on the ground. And the other one is I have the privilege of running a, a company that's a, a Bitcoin-based white-label NFT marketplace. And this is uh, something that most people have never even heard of. So if you have I, questions around layer two Bitcoin uh, called Liquid for Blockstream, we're a layer two Bitcoin NFT marketplace. And we do it for big brands. So uh, I'm not trying to shill or anything, but uh, like we did Playboy Magazine's first NFTs were actually on Bitcoin, which is really exciting. And uh, I guess the last thing I'll say as well, I've got people, seems like listening, is um, uh, our, our NFTs are three cents to mint. So if you play in the NFT space, you're used to paying 50 to 250 bucks US. Ours are three cents, relatively instant and static at the three cent rate. So Bitcoin-based NFTs is the future I believe in, and that's why I built a whole company around it. Happy to answer any questions around that. That's very cool. Thanks, Chris. Um, I'm glad to hear that you're building it on Bitcoin and not something else. I saw this crazy thing the other day. Somebody paid like $12,000 to mint an NFT on Ethereum. That's just stupid. Good morning, Jonathan. How are you doing? Um, Jonathan's a veteran, upstream, Bitcoin, environmentalist, humanitarian. Welcome. Hello. How's everybody doing? Thank you for having me up here. Um, Chris, I would love to connect with you on the Bitcoin NFT thing. Um, I've been trying to do a project uh, around that with some of the artwork that we had from one of our projects with refugee kids. And I think that would be really powerful to kind of leverage the, the craze of NFTs, show people about Bitcoin. And, and a lot of the art was done uh, after we gave a Bitcoin class, so there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of artwork there that is just you know finger paints, but they're very powerful. Um, yeah, I'm happy to talk about it. Um, one thing also probably worth note for everyone, like when we hear of NFTs, we think of the images, or if you're really advanced in NFT space, what we call PFPs. Um, Images and NFTs, we have one client, uh, Blockstream. So Blockstream is the, probably the biggest Bitcoin company on the planet. And we run Raritoshi for them. So raritoshi.com is an NFT marketplace. And that's an image-based one. Now, it's curated, so you have to apply and get approved as an artist. But what I'm really excited about, and if you want to think about NFTs, it's kind of like us talking about Bitcoin. It's, um, I don't actually spend any time talking about the image side of NFTs. Um, NFTs are going to be prolific in our future, whether we like it or not. And the future use of NFTs, where they're ubiquitous in our life, is where I'm interested in talking. Um, although I'm happy to help you. Uh, sorry, I wasn't trying to just or anything. We, we can definitely help you on the image side. But what's fascinating to think about, especially with Bitcoiners, is to even be aware that Bitcoin NFTs exist, but tickets, for example, we've built an NFT ticket system. So if you go to silhouettesthemovie.com, the only way to watch this sci-fi movie to this day is by buying an NFT with Bitcoin. Um, what that does that people don't really get is it invalidates illegal scalpers right away because you can invalidate the provenance, the origination of the NFT ticket. So you can still have resales of tickets, but you can't scalp them or make illegal copies anymore. So this is a, a quick example of where I want the conversation on NFTs to go 
outside of the image speculation side and around the practical, uh, the other one I would just put out there to the group to think about is like credentials. So me, instead of claiming I'm a PhD from University of British Columbia, um, I can show an NFT credential that can be validated that's from the university um, as a quick, another example. So this validation that I own the digital asset is the exciting future of NFTs that I like to talk about. Um, less so than the image stuff, which is exciting and it makes FU money for those who are participating, but it's not the future. The future is going to be more on the DAO side and DeFi side. I see your hand, Adwell, for calling you one second. Hey, Chris, before you go, um, like hook up with me later, please. I'd like to get you back to talk a little bit more about this. Um, I'm, I'm, I want to learn more about NFTs. I know a lot of people probably do particular to how, um, NFTs work with Bitcoin. Like I'm not a big uh, fan of the other altcoins, et cetera. And I'm excited to see that you're doing that on the Bitcoin chain. That's awesome, man. Yeah. I'm uh, happy to do this again. Again, this is the, uh, one of the uh, best spaces I've participated in, again, in terms of just the, uh, the being nice aspect, which sounds silly, but it's going to go a long way. Yeah, it's for the new people. You know, we need to be nice. Otherwise, you know, new people will go into a mosh pit with a bunch of Bitcoiners, and they're like, holy crap, I've had people DM me and that they're like i can't even like they're like they're using all these bitcoin words and they're like they're so amped up and like the energy just freaks people the hell out so bad wolf go ahead hey chris um yeah i, I really perked up at, at, at what you um, brought up here because it's really exciting uh, i'm a software developer myself and i've been i've been th trying to think of ways to incorporate um you know ideas like this and with using Bitcoin. And so I'm, I'm, I'm trying to kind of reverse engineer this in my head, you know, what, what you're saying. Um, it sounds like what you're saying is that the use case is that we can use Bitcoin's time chain, which basically is, is, a, is a historical record um, in time. We can use it to like mark credentials. And so for instance, the, the use case of someone getting a PhD uh, that's a certificate that is issued by some authority, um, and, and you want to have proof that that was done at a certain point in time. What better? I, so I guess maybe the, the use case there is that we we store that on the on the blockchain on the time chain. We're using the time chain component of it, uh, and then in the whole world can see, I guess. But I'm so I guess my question for you is: is, is that a correct assumption? Is that what we're we're doing here and also the, the other question is how do we um, verify or validate the issue and authority that you know that how do you distinguish you know the, the University of Michigan versus um, you know some somewhere in Uganda or something you know that, that that's just a, a degree mill or something yeah I'm uh... I just want to acknowledge that you've got the time thing. This is what this is what the Bitcoin blockchain provides. And so I've got background noise. I'm in the part of the downtown east side, which is the uh, OP addiction center of the world right now. No longer. But um, uh, the fact that Bitcoin is the time chain, that's the base one layer that Bitcoin provides that when you get side of the currency conversation, that changes the game. So there's two layer two technologies, which is what my company focuses on. 
one called Lightning, and that's a P2P in our, our POS uh, for contacts like we implemented in 2018. So you can now use Bitcoin. You can accept Bitcoin at your business anyway. Now, we use Liquid, which is from a Bitcoin idealist perspective, is not totally ideal because it's actually federated. It's not, it's open source federated though, so you can change the federation at any time. But it's the best thing I've seen in terms of a layer two protocol that offers two unique things on Bitcoin that has never existed before. One of them is confidential transactions. And that is something that the Bitcoin chain doesn't offer. Um, the other one is effectively smart contract. So the folks at Blockstream who watch you know, Ethereum and these other smart contract systems for many times, uh, for many years, rather, uh, implementing Liquid, the fact that you can now do smart contracts on Bitcoin is still unheard of, even in our industry, in the Bitcoin industry. I can speak to people who have been in Bitcoin, like, live it and breathe it, and are not aware that you can now do smart contracts on Bitcoin, but it's using what's called liquid protocols. If you, if you Google Blockstream Liquid, you can go down the road of seeing how that works, and that's what we use for our tech side. Chris, how much longer are you going to be here for? I'm literally in front of the coffee shop that I'm supposed to go into because I'm enjoying the conversation. But um, let's uh, let's you know schedule another one another morning where we can, I can do a full Q and A or something like that. I would love to. Yeah, I think that'd be great. Thanks for your participation today, man. Good luck in your meeting. Thanks for having me, everyone. Everyone has an awesome day. Hey, Chris, do me a favor, DM me, please. Thanks, Chris. Uh, can you DM me? Sorry, I'm literally outside of a coffee shop heading in, so I'm not going to remember. And uh, I, I can't. That's I followed you, but I can't DM you. You can't DM me. Um, what? Can you just can you just uh, tweet me and say DM me? Done. Sorry, it sounds weird. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, everyone. Thank Have you. an awesome day. Thank you. Me too, Chris. Cheers, everyone. Do you want mind like acting as an intermediary, connecting those two? Jonathan, so, DM humble. Yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, okay. Okay. Thank you. Yeah, you can DM me, and I'll go ahead and connect with Chris. That way, you guys can chat about it. Radio. Okay, switching gears a little bit. You guys hear about that World Coin thing? Well, I've heard about oh, it. <laughs> Where did that stem from? All I know is that the SWAN team was like going like off on this thing yesterday. Apparently somebody who's got apparently a reputation in the Bitcoin world has come up with this token coin that requires you to scan your iris to be a part of it. So it's like they're like losing their shit talking about how it's just it's basically a a uh, a global surveillance tool in the hands of a very small number of people, and it looks pretty scary. Have any of you seen, seen this thing? Yeah, I posted about it earlier. I saw someone else's post, and it was like, what is this world coin? Here we go again, another one of these things. And I started looking at it. I haven't done any due diligence on it beyond this cursory review. But as soon as I saw a ball that you have to look into that uh, the note, the note, I forget what they called them too. They're not even node operators or called something else, but like the node orbs. operators have these orbs and you're supposed to stare in them and then like give it your iris information, which allegedly is not stored anywhere, but somehow 
identifies through zero knowledge proofs that you're uh, haven't that you haven't been a recipient of the world coin. And if you haven't, then you can get some. And if you have, then you won't. It's, uh, I, I, and then I looked at the about page and saw the investors, and I just kind of like closed the tab. Yeah, it. I, I went into a bit of a deep dive rabbit hole on this yesterday because, um, um, long story short, 10 years ago, um, we used to do, we used to use the same technology in Afghanistan, uh, in the military, um, uh, for, you know, a, a, a country, a, a populace that no one has social security numbers. No one has uh, photo ID. So, um, you know, no judgment. They would literally take, uh, retina scans of every Afghan uh, person they ran into, whether they had whether they were um, a combatant or not, just a uh, digitally ID, and that information um, got sent back stateside, and it would get stored at the NSA and get stored at the CIA. And and um, I'm not telling any tales out of school, um, but sadly, that's um, information that'll. Uh, preserved through the test of time. And if you think that world world coin is just taking some retina scans and oh that's just to make sure you don't get 20 coins instead of 10. No, no. Uh, in their prospectus and their fine print, they clearly state we reserve the right to use this information third uh, uh, with third party affiliates or at our own discretion. Uh, it's you know, it's 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 gross, but it's all there in black and white. Yeah, thanks for the scoop on that, Matt. I appreciate it. I'm sure everybody here does too. So, the uh, the the moral of the story is stay the hell away from that crap. It's pretty scary. Jonathan, go ahead. Yeah. So, Matt, uh, to follow up on what you were saying, um, I, I, as a veteran, I still have friends that are in, and you know, we just had that whole pullout of Afghanistan debacle. Well, um, some of my uh, intelligence friends told me that that entire database that you were talking about. Yeah it was uh, lost to the enemy. So that's why we don't collect data like that because it can definitely end up in the wrong hands. And so uh, unfortunately, a lot of my friends and a lot of the people that actually helped my friends, uh, they're all now in a giant bingo book. Well, uh, uh, to, to follow up just on that real fast, um, while, while I was in, and, and to be fair, I, I did get out in 2015, 2016, um, but that information was sent in real time uh, back stateside. So n no, the, 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 the data collection and the retina scanning that we were doing on the country, um, that was all processed in real time back here in Langley and um, um, uh, Charlottesville, Virginia, and uh, here uh, back in the States. I think it brings up the question though, whether, you know, what most citizens of the United States would consider enemies of the United States, whether they were got a copy of that somehow from their um, so-called buddies here. I don't know. I'm not going to get into that because that'll just piss me off. Bad Wolf, go. Yeah, you know, I was thinking about the retinal scans and all of that going to like a centralized, uh, you know, place like the NSA. But, you know, like I also think about technologies like Face ID that a lot of us probably use every day. So like, how many times a day do we dox ourselves to our devices? 100%. Go ahead. So, yeah, I was going to say, at this point, I was drawing on that, is that it goes to 
you know, it's all going to a centralized server. And so we're really putting a, putting a lot of trust and faith that that server doesn't get hacked or doesn't get shared. So I, you know, that makes me want to check my, my service my terms of service agreement with like Apple and that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'll I mean, comment here and then we're going to switch topics. Yeah. Thank you. I, I, it's like, yeah, the, the, one of the things that I always say to people when I'm orange pilling is like, you know, I start getting into like the distribution and the having schedule and the block reward and like all this stuff. And one of the things that I say is, you know, well, Satoshi knew, and I'm not an economist, but I'm always saying like, well, Satoshi knew that if you have money, you can't just like drop it on the population and expect it to have value. It has to be like hard to get and like, you know, scarce and like all this, you know, and these guys are just really testing that theory. I mean, every shit coin brings its own, you know, thing that they're, that they're doing. And this one seems to be, what if we just dropped all this, you know, thing on of alleged value on the population just at once, no real distribution schedule other than come and get it and give us your, your data, which is like, read the room guys. And the sad thing like right now is that a lot of people will actually engage with that platform and give up their, their retina information mm -hmm. for worthless pogs. It's, you know, it does make me sad. Yeah, for sure. But that's why we've got Bitcoin. So let's move on. New topic. Um, we've got Jaime here. Jaime's from El Salvador. He's got an update for us on what's going on in the ground in El Salvador. Jaime, good morning. How are you doing, man? Good morning, Alex. Uh, yeah, I just um, wanted to, uh, um, I guess, talk about a little bit of a uh, uh, different subject. I know in these spaces we often tend to focus on the economics technology, the, all the geopolitical stuff that's going on, price, market, and we of course have a lot of fun with the word crypto. <laughs> but uh, recently I've been uh, involved in a fun project that focuses on people. And, uh, and actually through Humble, uh, I met uh, Olya uh, from Borders, Borderless uh, Bitcoin Travel Show and she's unable to, to join me up on stage here. She. Uh, She's picking up her kids right now from school, so she um, she's not able to, but hopefully maybe at some point she's able to, to do that. But uh, she was in El Salvador a couple months uh, ago, just ahead of the uh, legal tender, um, I guess becoming legal in, in, in the country. And, and she met a couple of uh, young men, and uh, it, they're actually MCs, freestylers, and she was in the middle of shooting uh, her episode, and um, they sort of uh, came by and they bumped into each other, and they were just spewing rhymes, uh, doing their thing in freestyle, and um, and then she she kind of like they performed for her. She joined in. They even uh, uh, had her sing a, a few rhymes with with them, and um, and so. Bitcoin law has, has not been implemented in El Salvador, and so she essentially orange-pilled them right on the spot and got them to do download um, the Bitcoin Beach wallet and was trying to tip them. <laughs> but, you know, they, they didn't know any anything about it, and, and, and even up to about a week ago when, when I became involved in, in working with them, um, they really did not know much about it. And so through Humble, we 
time, one of these spaces we met and uh, Olya reached out to me and she said, look, um, you know, these, these, these guys, they're so talented. They're, they're up in my YouTube channel. Um, you know, but, and people are asking me like, Hey, how, how can we, um, like tip these guys or how can we, you know, make sure that, you know, their talented is, is being rewarded. And, uh, she, she said to me, but they don't really have like a, a BTC address. They don't, um, they don't, uh, have, um, even a clue about how to interact with people or monetize their, their, uh, their talent. Um, they don't even have a Twitter account. So then, um, so then what I did is I reached out to them. I had a chat with them. We created some Twitter accounts for them and, um, we got them signed up with uh, Strike and Lightning Wallet. Now their, their Strike account hasn't been approved yet, but the, the idea is, was to get them some tips on their um, profiles and uh, and so. But they they do have links to uh, Bitcoin Beach uh, Lightning tipping feature on their profiles and um, and so um, and they've learned a lot in like less than a week. They learn so much. And, uh, and so we're planning on hosting a space for these guys so that, you know, the entire international Bitcoin community can, can meet them. Now they don't speak English, so they'll, they'll be there with us and I might be translating for, for part of it, but, um, but, um, we hosted a space with them in Spanish yesterday and they were amazing. They like, you know, like being MCs, they took over and, and it was great. And, you know, and we had even, um, a representative from, uh, the Salvadorian government join in and, and they said, Hey, these are our needs. Um, you know, a lot of people associate our art with gang activity. And as you all know, gang activity is, is a huge concern in El Salvador. And he said like a lot of the kids in the street, they, they want to get off the street and they come to hip hop. They come to, to do freestyling and the hip hop culture and graffiti because they don't want to join gangs, but we're still being treated like criminals. And so they got to basically interact with, uh, with this government official and, and he's, um, you know, they're, they're kind of trying to plan to, to have some f safe spaces for them, uh, to, to do their, their art. And, um, and so it was good. And so it got to the point where, now, uh, Juan and Luis are their names. They're going to want to host a regular um, Twitter Spaces spot for hip hop and freestyle in El Salvador. So it went from like absolutely knowing nothing to like, and then we, we all, of course, we taught them how to transfer money between wallets, and they're still struggling a little bit with that um, because, it, I mean, it takes a while, right? And and so, but they've come a long way and, and I think that, um, so we're going to host a space on early next week and you guys will get to meet these guys and, and, uh, hopefully you can join us. Stay tuned. We haven't finalized, uh, all the details yet, but, um, hopefully humble can, uh, help us co-host and, uh, but yeah, these are the amazing, uh, positive stories that are outside of all the things that we talk about. And, um, and you know, one of the guys actually downloaded Chiba wallet and he spent his $30 already, <laughs> but the other guy, because he doesn't know, uh, Juan, he, he doesn't know how to use the, the technology, uh, just yet. He, uh, he's like, I'm not spending my 30 bucks. He said, you know, like my 30 bucks is almost 38 
dollars right now. So <laughs> he was like so pumped. I'm like, yeah, like that's the beauty of it. Just don't touch it. Let it sit there and see what happens in the year. And then you'll see. And and then, uh, you know, talking to them, like I broke it down, like one BTC is a hundred million Satoshis. They're kind of like cents. And I mean, just super like, simple language and and then uh because they all, they also thought that like different wallets were different money different technologies like no 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 this is kind of like you have your black leather wallet and you have your brown wallet and you have maybe a nylon wallet they're just different wallets and the money gets passed between wallets you want to use a different wallet on a different day then you just transfer your money and they're like oh, okay not so, so there's a lot of education that needs to take place there for sure. But um, I mean, they're they're um, they're good, and I think they're feeling way more empowered because now you know they're taking um, command and ownership of their own spaces that nothing exists, and and especially with the, all the pandemic restrictions right now, they said, hey, being on on the on Twitter and YouTube, I think is going to be great for our community because we've been feeling isolated and and because of all the rules they can't get together and and host like hip-hop events or social events right so super amazing story and i hope that you guys can join us uh, early next week we'll get more details out i don't know if there's anything else to add humble no i see that um i popped the video up there and looks like you popped the video up there too so if you guys are curious as to um kind of what um, how this all stemmed and what this all stemmed from. It was from Olia's uh, channel on YouTube and the videos that she has on there. They're just simply amazing. So I'd encourage you guys to watch that little snippet that she has there. She does have one full video um, completed. It's absolutely mind blowing the quality and the content. But um, anyways, yes, it's, we're looking forward to this, this space with these gentlemen. They're quite talented and, and fun. So Thanks for talking about that, Amy. Yeah, for sure. And like, you know, I know that there's been a lot of like uh, uh, attention and I don't know if it's warranted with these island stupid guys. And like, this is the antithesis of, of the island boys. Like, if you hate those guys, you're going to love Juan and Luis. Like, it's, it's just co- completely like what they do is art and talent and I actually showed them the video of the Island Boys, and it's like, seriously, this is what's going viral right now in the Bitcoin space? Okay. <laughs> Congratulations. I mean, I'm really excited for those guys. If um, I'm, I'm interested in it, Humble, any information you've got on these guys, Jaime, any information you've got, I'd like to see anything they've got up publicly, anything I can do to help promote that. I'd like to, if you don't already know Camilla from Swan, my colleague, um, I'd like to introduce you. She's got a pretty big footprint in the Latin American market. Would love to like just pump these guys up and get them as much audience as possible because that's like, that can be a huge success story. Like if, you know, let's say they've got a space with 4,000 people and everybody's tipping them sats. I mean, how amazing is that of an example of what Bitcoin can do for the world? Let's make this thing happen. That's freaking awesome. All right, we got about five minutes left, so if anybody has any thoughts, comments, or last uh, things they want to say, you're already speaking on the stage, and there's some last uh, comment, closing comments you want to make. Now's the time. 
Uh, Jaime, thanks so much, man, for, for sharing that. Okay, while we got a little bit of a pause, I just want to uh, make a shout out to, to Logscale. He's been very helpful. Like, uh, I'm new to the whole Twitter Spaces hosting thing, been doing it only now for about a week and a half. Logscale's been doing it for a long time, so is Humble. Um, and they've been very kind to, to help me out and understand how a lot of this stuff works. Logscale's kind of shooting me DMs. He's like, yo, don't let that guy on stage. He's dangerous. <laughs> Things like that. So just thank you, man. I appreciate it. It's a great community. Y'all are my people. LRT, I'm going to bring you up here. Here, Log, I'm going to bring you up, too. British, good morning. You got anything to add, Log Scale? Yeah, th thanks for the shout out, man. Um, I really appreciate it. Um, I, I haven't known you for long, but I really feel like we're brothers in arms. Um, I think we're both trying to do the same thing with uh, discourse on, on Bitcoin, um, especially on spaces and make it uh, something that's friendly and accessible to a wider audience. Yeah, 100%. That's the mission. Good morning, British. How are you doing? Or I should say, as we've been taught by British, good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. <laughs> good evening, everyone. Hello. Still doing that thing. I'll learn it, British. I promise. Uh, it's all good. I got you. I'm glad you remembered because I, I did not. <laughs> well, him coming up here helped me help remind me. I'm like, gosh, we're doing that American centric thing. <laughs> I can't even remember. I don't even know what day it is of the week half the time this, this week. That's what I was expressing earlier. It's just been so chaotic. So I guess I shouldn't be so hard on myself for not remembering that from. Oh, I believe it was yesterday. Could have been the day before. Yes, don't blame yourselves at all for forgetting that the rest of the world exists. It's completely <laughs> <laughs> Americans really are ridiculous, man, I admit. Yeah, believe it or not, that's why I was explaining. Y'all were probably like, why is he telling us who Mr. Wonderful is? But I don't know if Mr. Wonderful is known all around the world, and I don't know who's in this space, you know? Yep. All right, so we're going to wrap it up. Tomorrow, if you're interested, uh, one of my really old colleagues in the gold industry, I've known this guy for many years. He's one of the top experts, top sort of analysts. He's got a pretty big following. Uh, he's very well respected in the industry. He and I are going to get together at, I think it's going to be 11 a.m. Pacific time. So that would be 2 o'clock Eastern. And um, we're going to wrap about gold and Bitcoin and my transition into Bitcoin and his thoughts and all that. Our purpose with all that, for those of you who, have, who are interested, is my mission is to, to take a lot of my former colleagues and people from the gold space and kind of bridge that gap into the Bitcoin world because it's been a very antagonistic relationship in my experience. You've got Bitcoiners just blowing up 
gold people and back and forth, and it's been ridiculous. So we need to have a civil conversation about this. So that's what that's going to be about. We do these spaces every morning, Monday through Friday. We do them, start them at 7 a.m. Pacific. Um, and we run them for about two hours. I just want to thank everybody for participating today. And I want to thank all your speakers for your contribution. I want to thank Humble for being my co-host. You are awesome. And uh, I just want everybody to know I love, I love y'all. This is the best community, man. It's awesome. And uh, the mission, the mission is for the Bitcoin army to go out there and orange pill the other 7 billion people in the world. So that's what we're going to do. I want to wish y'all a great day. Let's go out there and crush it, guys. Well, thank you for hosting. Have a great rest of the day and a great weekend, guys. Thanks, Hal. Bye, everybody. Thanks, Alex. Thanks, Humble, as always. Awesome, awesome space today.